Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 11, and we'll be considering the priesthood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, give attention to God's holy word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, who in the name of your Son is poured out into our hearts that we may understand your word, and in understanding your word we might behold your glory. We pray now, O Lord, that you would indeed perform that mighty work by pouring out your Spirit in the name of Christ, that we indeed might understand your word, and in understanding your word behold your glory, and be built up unto eternal salvation. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What do you need? What do you need in your life right now? Now, depending on when I ask you that question, it may be a different answer. Some of you may say, I need money. I I need much more money than I have. Uh, Some of you may say, depending on uh, whether or not you've eaten that day, that I need food. But of course, we are not in that kind of situation. And when I ask the question to you this morning, I'm asking a more fundamental question. What does mankind need? What do we need out of our religion? What is the thing that we need to have life and to enjoy peace with God? Now, in the days of Christ, when he came into the world, the Jews thought that they needed a king. They thought that they needed a warrior. They needed a military commander to throw off the tyranny of the Romans. Likewise, when Christ came into the world, the Greeks thought they needed a philosopher. They needed another Plato. 
another Aristotle to show them the ways of the universe and to give them understanding about how things work. These two mistakes are present today. There are some in the church who expect Christ and the Christian religion to be a political movement, to be a movement of throwing off the chains of tyranny. There are others who look to the gospel to provide the secret of wisdom, to provide the depths of philosophy so that we can understand how the world works. Today also there's another mistake when you ask people, what is Christ or what does Christ do for you? Many people come to Christ looking for, not a warrior, not a philosopher, but a psychiatrist. Many people come to Christ looking for a counselor who can help them understand themselves, who can help give them understanding about what's going on between my ears. There are other errors that have been uh, adopted in answering this question throughout the history of the church. But as we ask this question and look to the Scriptures, we need to understand that you and I do not know what we need. You and I are ignorant of our true danger, and only God can give us the answer. Only God can answer for us the question, this is what you need, because fundamentally, brothers and sisters, our problem is not political tyranny. Our problem is not misunderstanding the universe. Our problem is not psychological baggage. Our problem is sin in the sight of a holy God. The fundamental problem that we have is that we are alienated from God, subject to His wrath, and until we are reconciled to God, we have no hope. And so in the gospel, God answers the question, what do you need? You need a high priest. You need a mediator. You need one who can enter my presence and make atonement for your sins and then return and give you my blessing. You need a high priest. And what we find in this passage is that Jesus Christ is the only high priest that we need. We find that Jesus Christ is the high priest and is now the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What we find in this passage in particular is that Jesus Christ is the high priest. Because he meets the qualifications for a high priest. Jesus Christ is the high priest because he meets the qualifications for a high priest. What we're going to see in this passage is two things. Two simple ideas. In verses 1 through 4, the high priest defined... In verses 5 through 11, the high priest realized. In verses 1 through 4, the high priest defined. In verses 5 through 11, the high priest realized. 
Before we begin looking at these two parts of our text this morning, there's one more thing that needs to be pointed out. And this is both an exhortation to us, an encouragement to us, but also a diagnosis of part of our problem. What we're going to see at the end of this passage in verse 11, that not only do we misunderstand our need, but we are also negligent in understanding the cure. See, one of the fundamental problems that we have, not only that we misunderstand our sins, but we are lazy when it comes to understanding the cure. And so in this passage, as we look into this passage, I want to encourage you at the beginning, give heed to the things God has given to you which make for your salvation. And one of the first things he gives to us is a definition of the high priest. The high priest is defined in two ways in this passage. The high priest is defined first off by his uh, duties and by his calling. His duties and his calling. In verse 1 we find, uh, verse 1 and 2 we find his duties. Notice how the author writes. He says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. The author begins by defining the duties of the high priest, and one of the first qualifications for a high priest is that he must be a man. A high priest must be a human being. Notice he says they are taken from among men, and they are appointed for men in things pertaining to God. The word appointed here is a very common word that's used for ordained. It's the same idea, that God ordains priests from among the world of men to represent men in the presence of God. Now, here's one of the first things we have to understand about how God relates to us. God relates to us through representatives. God appoints representatives to uh, take our concerns into his presence, and then through that representative, he promises to give us his blessings. We saw this with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We see this in the Old Testament priesthood. If you examine the clothing of the Old Testament priest, he was given a glorious breastplate that had 12 gemstones on it, and he had two gemstones on his shoulders. Each one of those gemstones had a name of the tribe of Israel. The two stones on his shoulders had six tribes and six tribes. And so when the high priest went into the Lord's presence, he went in representing the nation. And this is one of the duties of the high priest is to represent men to God. But there's a particular kind of representation that the priest does. He does not go into God's presence like a lawyer advocating for you and arguing his case. He doesn't go into God's presence uh, as a king demanding his rights. He goes into God's presence to bring sacrifices. Look at what he says. 
He is appointed in things pertaining to God in order that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here's another very important thing we need to remember about our relationship with God. Nobody can come into God's presence without atoning sacrifice. Nobody can enter God's kingdom, God's throne room, God's glory, God's blessedness without the blood of a sacrifice. This is also represented in the Old Testament system. If you remember, when Moses built the tabernacle, he was commanded to build a bronze altar. Solomon, when he built the temple, also had a bronze altar. We read in Revelation 15 about the angels coming out of the heavenly temple. And when the angels came out with the bowls of God's wrath, nobody could enter the temple until the wrath was satisfied. In the Old Testament system and symbolically in the book of Revelation, the altar of sacrifice represented God's wrath. The lesson is that if you're going to enter the presence You have to deal with the wrath. The wrath is the first thing that you encounter as you go into God's presence. And the reason for this is clear in verse 1. Sacrifices for sins. You see, brothers and sisters, our sins provoke the wrath of God. Our sins are the object of God's wrath. Our sins anger the Lord because He is just, righteous, and holy. And the only way sin can be dealt with is if wrath is satisfied through a sacrifice. And so the priest, as he's appointed to represent men to God, he is appointed to offer these sacrifices. As the priest would enter into the holy place, he would have to offer the sacrifices on the altar first, secure atonement, and then he would take the blood of that sacrifice into the very holy place, proving atonement had been made. This is the work of a high priest. This is what they are. These are their duties. This is often, I think, probably neglected in our day. I think, perhaps, when we think about the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, we probably think about God's way of forgiving sin in the same way that we forgive sin. We, we will often forgive sins of others in an unjust way. We, we, will, we will think that it's the nobler thing to do to simply ignore it and pass over it and move on. The Scriptures call this winking at sin, overlooking sin without justice being effected. And we can make a mistake and think that that is how God forgives our sins, but that is not how the Lord forgives your sins. The Lord will only forgive your sin if there is a sacrifice on your behalf. The Lord can only forgive sin if blood is shed. That is the only way that sin is dealt with, and that is the high priest's job, to offer up these sacrifices for sin. One other thing we need to recognize about the priestly duties that the author is talking about here the, the fact of a priest, the fact that God provided a way of atonement under Moses and under Solomon, 
is a foretaste of the gospel. You see, God was not required to appoint a high priest. God was not required to provide the altar. There was nothing that caused God to provide the way of atonement except for His desire to save you, His desire to be reconciled to you. So the presence of a high priest is a gospel reality. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament is just as much gospel as the New Testament. It's just written in a different language. It just partakes of different ceremonies. But that language and those ceremonies are all gospel language and gospel ceremonies. Well, the author goes on. He describes the duties. He further describes the duties of the high priest, not merely outwardly, but inwardly. The high priest is to be compassionate. Look at what he says, verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The author draws a conclusion from this, verse 3, because of this, because of his own weakness, he is required for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. You see, the principle here about the high priest, not only is he appointed uh, by God to represent the people to God, the high priest, in order to accomplish this, has to identify with the people. He has to be one with the people. Notice the commonality here. The people are weak, the priest is weak. The people need sacrifices, the priest offers sacrifices for himself. And so the high priest is identified in intimate union with the people, and the particular way that the priest identifies with his people is in their weakness is in the need of mercy that they all need. It's, it's the, the necessity of what weak people need from God, which is mercy, grace, forgiveness, and deliverance. And so the high priest's duties are to represent men before God and to compassionately identify with the people he represents because of his own weakness. Now, that's not all that's required for a priest. You see, because this is God's plan of salvation, only God can appoint the high priest. That's what verse 4 now deals with. We saw that the, the definition of the priesthood, we've seen the duties. Now, we see the calling of the high priest. He says in verse 4, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. In the book of Exodus, as Moses was building the tabernacle and the Lord was giving him a revelation for the way of salvation in Old Testament language, he said, appoint Aaron your brother as the high priest. Consecrate him and his sons shall be priests to me forever. Aaron was called to be the high priest by God. And this, we might say in verse 4, is a supernatural qualification. You see, verses 1 through 3 are, as it were, natural qualifications. There's nothing particularly supernatural about what's described. Even the pagans understood the need for sacrifices. 
They misunderstood what the sacrifices were doing. They offered the wrong sacrifices. They offered them in the wrong place to the wrong God for the wrong reasons, but they still sacrificed. They at least understood that much. And this, this idea of being compassionate towards the weak is a rather natural idea that men understand. We all, at least most of us, would see a little baby and say, aw, that's being compassionate upon the weak because we recognize we also once were little babies in mama's arms. But this, verse 4, this qualification is a supernatural qualification. This is a qualification that is above the order of nature that only God himself can perform. God must appoint men to this office, and God does it through a calling. Now, a calling in the Scriptures is of two parts. There is an internal calling and an external calling. The internal calling would be the burden or the desire in a man's heart to serve God in public office. There's this, as it's described in the book of Jeremiah, the Word of God enters the man's heart and it's in his bones like a burning fire. He has to get this word out. That's the internal calling. But there's also an external calling. The external calling would be the agreement of the church. In Aaron's case, there was the agreement of Moses and the elders. They went through the whole ceremony of making the clothes, anointing him with the oil, offering the sacrifices. Throughout that whole process, they were agreeing Aaron is going to be our high priest. Now, this is important to understand just at a practical level about our life in the church. Those who serve as officers in the church, a type of priest as it were, we don't do the same thing priests do, but we do hold public office in the church, nobody can hold the office in the church who is not called by God, whose spirit has not been moved by the Spirit of God to desire this office. Now, how would this work in our day? Well, it works in the same way. There's an internal movement of the Spirit. There's a burden on the heart. And there is an echo or an agreement in the congregation to appoint him to that office. In both cases, the Spirit is working to call a man to this office. In both cases, it is God who is appointing this man to that honor. And so, the priesthood has been defined. This is what Aaron performed when he was appointed, and this is the definition of the office that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills. Well, the author now goes on, having defined the office of the priest, he now shows us how this is realized, or how the reality of the high priest comes to expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get into this, I want to point out something to you about the structure of Scripture. Many of you have probably heard of the idea of a chiasm. If you have not, I'll explain it. A chiasm is a structure in Scripture that follows the pattern of the Greek letter chi. Chi looks like an X. And so a chiasm in Scripture is when you find a logical ordering that often follows like this. 
It doesn't often follow the order that we expect. You see, in verses 1 through 4, we have duties and calling. We would expect the next section to follow the same order, duties and calling. But in the structure of this passage, the author goes, duties, calling, calling, duties. He orders it in that way. That's not a mistake. That's just normally how Scripture operates. That's what we find in this passage. Verse 4, he ended with calling. Now in verse 5 and 6, he talks about the calling of Christ. Look at what he says, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now one of the first things that the author emphasizes is that in fulfilling the office of the high priest, Christ fulfilled the calling. He was called to this, not on his own authority, but by the Father who begot him. He begins by saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a reference to Psalm 2, and this is, by the way, the first passage of Scripture that the author has cited in the book of Hebrews. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 5. In establishing the glory of Christ, the author begins to quote Scripture in this section. The first Scripture he quotes is the one he just quoted in chapter 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The reason that the author of Hebrews is doing this, he returns to this same verse, is because he wants to emphasize for us that Christ is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of the Father. This is the one that we are talking about. And then he adds another piece from Psalm 110. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you turn back to Psalm 110, I just want to point out one thing to you from Psalm 110. Well, two things. The first one is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is often cited to prove the kingship of Christ. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. That's king language. That's royal promises. This is the conquering king that Christ is through the power of the Father. However... That's not all that Psalm 110 says. In fact, Psalm 110 is another chiasm. And in order to understand the emphasis of Psalm 110, you have to understand that it begins by talking about a king. And then in verses 5 through 7, <clears throat> verses 5 through 7, it continues talking about a king. But in the middle, it says that this king is not merely a king. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What Psalm 110 is teaching us and what Hebrews 5 is reminding us of 
is that yes, indeed, Christ is a king and he has come to conquer his enemies, but the way this king will conquer is by being a priest. The way that this king will defeat his enemies is through an atoning sacrifice for sins. The warfare of this king is not the warfare of the world, but it is a spiritual weapon, mighty in God, for pulling down the strongholds of Satan through the blood of the sacrifice. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so God called his son to be a priest. Not only was Christ called by his father and ordained lawfully, he also fully fulfills the duties of the office. He himself is the ultimate sacrifice, and that is what the author moves to speak about now. But I want to remind you of something before we get to these next verses, because these verses are are the filet mignon of Christ's sacrifice. These verses are the heart and the essence of the author's point here. Remember the author's point. At the end of chapter 4, he told us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, he defines the duties of the priest is to be compassionate upon the weak and the ignorant because he himself is subjected to weakness. What the author is about to describe here is how the Lord Jesus Christ, though the Son of God, was subjected to weakness, not of necessity, but voluntarily. Not because he was a sinner like Aaron, but because he is the Savior who willingly took this office that God gave to him. Look at what the author says. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Notice first off the language. Verse 7, it says he offered up these things. Same language as we find in verse 1. The high priest is to offer both gifts and sacrifices. It is, he is to present things to God to make an atoning sacrifice. It says here that he offered up prayers, supplications, vehement cries, and tears. Notice that in this description of our Lord, his prayers and his crying out to God, there's a crescendo of the intensity. It begins with prayers, generic term for calling upon God. He then goes up to supplications. Supplications are when a humble uh, servant or somebody who is in an inferior position cries out to a superior, have mercy upon me. That's a supplication. It goes even further, and he says, with vehement cries. And then ultimately, words fail him, and all he can offer are tears to him who was able to save him from death. This, I believe, is a description of the prayers that Christ offered during his sufferings. Turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, we begin to see these particular prayers that Christ offered in light of his sufferings. Luke 22, you know the famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, starting in verse 39. 
Christ is on the eve of the crucifixion, quite literally the eve of the crucifixion. He goes up to the garden to pray with his disciples. He came to the Mount of Olives. As he was accustomed, his disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said, pray that you may enter not into temptation. Now, why would Christ say this to his disciples right now? Because Christ is being tempted. On the eve of his greatest work as our king and priest, Christ as a man was feeling the weakness that he was subjected to. He is being tempted. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed. He is showing them how to avoid temptation by praying that he would not enter into it. And as he prays, he says to them, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Christ goes on, and as he, he's prayed this prayer, the, the story carries on, and he ends up being nailed to the cross. And as he's nailed to the cross, he is suffering and groaning. And the other Gospels describe that about the sixth hour, when the sufferings and the weakness were at their height, Christ calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Supplications and vehement cries while he's suffering. And then finally at the end in verse 46 of Luke, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And he offered up in the days of his flesh prayers, supplications, vehement cries, and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Returning to Hebrews chapter 5, this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only offered up these prayers, but verse 7 tells us that he was heard because of his godly fear. Now, we need to ask ourselves, when it says that God heard Christ, what does this mean? we sometimes think that if God hears our prayers, we get the thing that we asked for. That's not always the case because sometimes we don't ask for the right thing. Or we ask it for a wrong motive. James chapter 4. But Christ, being the Son of God, being the servant of His Father, always doing the things that please Him, always doing the will of the Father, always praying according to the Father's will, He had godly fear was heard. Now remember what Christ prayed. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Christ was heard because he prayed for the same things the Father wanted. And what did the Father want? The Father wanted Christ to die for His people. Christ, as He was subjected to the weakness of the cross, prayed and asked the Father for strength to fulfill that will. He was not praying to get out of the cross. He was praying to fulfill the cross. And He was heard in that He had godly fear. You see, the prayers of Christ 
are his expression in the midst of absolute weakness to be strengthened to do the will of the Father without faltering, without failing. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what Christ was praying. Now, why would he do this? Why would he pray to endure the sufferings? Because he wants to give you mercy and grace. He wants to give you what you need. He wants to give you the atoning sacrifice that alone can reconcile you to God. He was ordained to this office. He willingly undertook this office. And in the midst of his weakness, he prayed vehemently to fulfill the office. And now because of this, there's more. Because of this, verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This verse is often perhaps a little bit confusing to us because the, the next verse is like it. It says, and having been perfected, we think that he is the eternal son of God. He doesn't need perfection. He is perfect. He doesn't need to learn. He's omniscient. But understand the context. Christ is fulfilling the qualifications for a high priest. This is not speaking about Christ as the eternal Son of God. This is speaking about Christ as the ultimate man taken from among men to represent men in the presence of God. In order to fulfill that office, he had to learn weakness that he had not known before. He had to learn what it meant to suffer. He had to learn what it meant to be subjected to the wrath of God and to suffer the penalties for sin because in himself... He never experienced that in his whole life. But as our high priest, as the one ordained and appointed, as the one who offered up himself, he learned it through what he suffered. He was perfected as our high priest through his sufferings. And then in verse 9 it says, because he is perfected, because he learned these things, he has become the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. Brothers and sisters, the thing that you need is a high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of the Father, has been ordained and appointed as that high priest. And through his obedient sufferings on the cross, and primarily his vehement cries and prayers to the Father, he has become that high priest. Obey him. Cling to him. Believe in him. Trust in Him because He has what you need. He has everything that you need in His precious blood. He is the author of eternal salvation. But not only so, remember the broader context. One of the qualifications for the high priest is that he has to have compassion upon the wandering and the ignorant because he himself is subject to weakness. Weakness is a funny thing. We who are born in weakness and live our whole lives in weakness have only experienced a small portion of what it means to be weak. You know, I recently started going back to the gym after uh, a few months of negligence, and I was not very strong to begin with, and I've noticed that I've, I've gotten weaker, but not by very much. 
I didn't have a lot of strength to begin with, and so I didn't lose a lot of strength. My weakness was only that much. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God and the perfect man, never knew weakness. And so for him to be subjected to weakness, he experienced all the depths of the weakness of sin, yet without sinning himself. He experienced all of the abysmal depths of what it means to be subjected to God's holy wrath. And to that degree, he is able to have compassion upon you. You see, the compassion that Christ shows is directly related to the amount of weakness he experienced. That's the definition of a high priest. He's compassionate because he's weak. To the degree that he's weak, he will be compassionate. Christ was made the weakest of all men. Therefore, he has the most compassion upon the wandering and the ignorant. Brothers and sisters, Christ is your high priest. Go to him. As the author says, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Christ is compassionate to sinners. Christ has offered his blood for sinners. Christ has offered up not just his blood, but the cries and the tears for your sake. And he will have compassion upon you. This is really what we need, isn't it? A, a high priest who is compassionate to sinners. See, brothers and sisters, when you sin, and sin you shall, when you think about the Lord's disposition to you, when you think about the Lord's attitude towards you when you have sinned, it is not an attitude of wrath and judgment. It is an attitude towards you of mercy and compassion. Come back to the way. Come back to my paths. Now there's one condition. Notice that the high priest is compassionate to the wandering and the ignorant. You see, sometimes we sin in ignorance. We are walking merrily along as the sheep of the Lord's pasture, and we don't know that there's a ditch on the other side of that fence, and so we go through the fence and fall in the ditch. There's hilarious videos out there of sheep and how uh, dumb they can be. The shepherd, knowing that the sheep are dumb and hard-headed, has compassion. Picks them up, puts them back in the grass. They go right back in the ditch. He picks them up and puts them right back on the grass. Those are the ones that Christ is compassionate to. Those are the ones that Christ is merciful to. There's a danger here, though. Because sometimes we don't sin in ignorance. Sometimes we don't sin not knowing what we're doing. Sometimes we sin with what the Scriptures call a high hand. A high hand would be similar to, you see the revolutionaries when they march, and they march with their fist in the air. That's a high hand. That's an arrogant hand of rebellion saying, we don't want you ruling over us. I don't want you ruling over me, Lord. For those who sin in this way, there may not be mercy for you. The Lord's patience has a time limit. 
And right now, he may be compassionate towards you. He may be patiently dealing with you. But because he's patiently dealing with you does not mean you can continue sinning. It means you need to repent. It means you need to return to the Lord because eventually his patience will run out if you continue raising your hand in defiance of his ways. But for those of you who have sinned in ignorance, for those of you who have wandered, Christ is merciful. Christ is the compassionate one. And he is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, ultimately, the question between rebellion and ignorance is do you fundamentally want to obey Christ? Not do you like the idea of Christ. Not do you want Christ the psychologist. Not do you want Christ the philosopher. Not do you want Christ the king. But do you obey Christ the priest? And what does Christ the priest command you to do? Repent and believe. Come unto me, all you who are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's it. In your sins, go to Christ, and he will have compassion. Now, the author concludes by repeating what he said about the calling in verse 10. He was called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he concludes with this one final admonition. He says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. There's a question about this verse. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about Melchizedek? Is, is he the one that he wants to say a lot about, but it's difficult because it's a real obscure reference in the book of Genesis and Psalm 110? Or is the author talking about Christ the high priest? Is it Christ's priestly mediation that the author wants to explain more about, but it's difficult because the church has become dull of hearing. I think that it is Christ he's referring to. The entire book of Hebrews is all about Christ and his priestly mediation. Melchizedek is merely a character illustrating and highlighting what Christ is and will do. But the substance, the filet mignon of the scriptures, is Christ's sacrifice. Now notice here the admonition that he gives to us. He says that it's hard to explain because we are dull of hearing. Let me, let me put it this way and, and just conclude with this. Because the author is about to transition in the next section to explaining this more fully. But at this point, I just want to explain this. The reason that we are often slow to hear the truth of the gospel and lazy in learning about Christ as our high priest is twofold. One, it has to do with the nature of the priesthood. The priesthood and what a priest does is a divine, supernatural thing. It is not something we understand by nature. It is not something we can comprehend the way that we comprehend transmissions and fuel pumps. The priesthood that Christ fulfills is something God has ordained and God therefore must explain it to us, but you and I are sinners. 
And what that means at a fundamental level is that spiritual things are distasteful to us. Spiritual things are not what we would choose to eat. We, in our sins, when the Lord offers us, when when we have on the table, as it were, cookies and vegetables, we will choose the cookies because we like the cookies. But the vegetables take more work to eat, and the vegetables are what we need to live. Likewise with the doctrine of Christ. We don't naturally choose to learn about Christ because we're dull of hearing. The other reason why we're dull and sluggish is because on the one hand, we don't understand the wrath of God and the wickedness of our sins. And because we don't understand that, we don't understand the magnitude of the grace of Christ. We do not understand the weight of glory that God has prepared for those that obey Him. And so my encouragement to you is that as you go throughout this week, repent of your sins, Go to the Lord Jesus Christ and get more understanding of what it is that God has promised to you and how Christ gives it to you. And as you do that, you will be blessed. You will find mercy and grace. And you will find yourself praising the Lord in ways you have not praised Him since. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for your word and for the great high priest that we've been given. We thank you that he perfectly fulfills all the qualifications of the priesthood and that in him we have exactly what we need to be reconciled to you. Please help us to know him, to understand him, to give attention to him and to his mediation and that by faith we might behold his glory as we wait patiently for his glorious appearing. And we ask this all. For Jesus' sake, amen.